Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 30 of Luke 22. Um, there's an outline on the back of the bulletin, if that's helpful for you, to keep an eye on as, as we move along. Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 30. It'll certainly be helpful to have the Bible open in front of you and, and follow along if you're able. So hear the word of the Lord. Luke 22, 1 through 30. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. They came to the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, this passage is, is about the Lord's Supper, but it doesn't start there. So, so it, starts, uh, it starts with Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover which was one of Israel's annual feasts. If you've been, uh, if you've been logging in online on Sunday nights and as Tim has gone through Exodus, then you've seen uh, this in Exodus chapter 12 and following the talk about the Passover feast. And it was a feast that commemorated their rescue from the Egyptians. And again, it's spoken about all throughout Exodus and in other spots in the first five books of the Bible in particular. So let's listen to God's explanation of this meal. This is from Exodus chapter 12, verse three and following. This is what he says there. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. 
Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So that's what this meal, that's what the Passover meal that they're gathering together to take. That's, that's what it's about. So Israel had celebrated this religious meal annually ever since they had been rescued away from Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians. And the Israelites would come from all around into Jerusalem if they were able to, to celebrate this Passover annually. And this is what Jesus gives the disciples instructions about. Verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And it makes sense that Jesus would honor this feast because God, uh, Jesus always fulfilled God's law. So anything in the old covenant that was commanded of the followers of the Lord, Jesus always obeyed those commands. So Exodus gives this command for God's people to take the Passover. And so Jesus is definitely going to take the Passover. But remember, Jesus is a poor traveling preacher. So this is Luke 9, 58. That's what we're told. He had nowhere to lay his head. So he doesn't have a home in which to take the, the Passover meal. So the disciples ask him, okay, we, we're going to take the Passover. You've told us that, but where are we going to take it? So verse nine, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And then he gives these instructions. He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished Prepare it there. Now, we've seen Jesus do this kind of thing before. We saw him do it back in chapter 19, where he predicted that that donkey would be there and the owner would be willing for Jesus to ride on this donkey. He does the exact same thing here. He makes this prediction that no human could make. It's contingent on the decisions of this particular man to be in this spot at the right time. And then that man to be willing to let this upper room be used. It was really unusual, by the way, for a man to be carrying a jar of water. That wasn't typical. It was usually females that would be carrying the, the water. So all of this stuff that Jesus lays out there, it happens exactly like he says it would. He always, his word always comes to pass. Verse 13, and they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. His promises always come true. Everything he says is always spot on right. And, and at the end of your life, when you're welcomed into heaven by way of Christ, and a lot of mysteries are revealed to us, presumably, where we see how certain things work together, you'll realize the same thing he, he tells the disciples here, the same thing they realize in verse 13, and they went and found it just as he had told them. Okay, so now they've got this spot to take the Passover meal, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Okay, so we know from the gospel stories, Jesus had a large group of disciples, but he, he doesn't take all of them. They don't all celebrate it together. He takes the closest ones to him, these closest 12, his apostles, and he invites them to take this, this meal with him, this Passover. But what we see in this passage, Jesus is actually transforming this meal. So he starts with the Passover, but then by the end, it ends up being something different. And what it ends up being is the Lord's Supper that Christian churches have taken since the beginning of church history. 
the meal that we get to take once a month here in this church. It's one of two gospel symbols that Jesus gives to his church. Baptism is one. The Lord's Supper is, is the second. So what is it that we learn about the Lord's Supper from this passage? And, and just as, as important, what is God calling us to do from this explanation of the Lord's Supper? What is he calling us to do as we take the Lord's Supper monthly? Well, four things. And this is the way we'll look at the passage. This is the outline on the back of the bulletin there. Four things. First, he's telling us to look forward. Second, he's telling us to look back. Third, love Jesus. And fourth, love the church. So first, the Lord's Supper instructs us to look forward. Look at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Okay, so Jesus, he's reminding the apostles what he's reminded them about several times, especially since the second half of the Gospel of Luke. Most recently in chapter 18, verse 31, flip there if you've got a Bible open, chapter 18, verse 31. And there he says, for I will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after being flogged will be killed. So he reminds him again, this is where he's headed. He's hours away from being betrayed and arrested and wrongfully accused and then killed on a cross. It, this is what Jesus is talking about in our passage in verse 15, when he says he's going to suffer. And, and we're familiar with the, the idea of somebody who's about to get executed and they get to choose their last meal. Well, this is Jesus's last meal with, with his apostles. This is what he chooses to do before he heads to the cross. Verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But, and, and here's the first point we're looking at this morning, Jesus knows this won't ultimately be his last meal with the disciples. No, this meal, it'll be his last meal on earth with the disciples in this age. Look what he says, verse 16. For I tell you, I will, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this is going to be Jesus' last meal with the disciples on earth, but only on earth, only in this life. He knows that he will eat again with them. And he says, once God's kingdom comes, then again, he'll, he'll dine with his followers. And this is the first thing Jesus tells us to do when we take the Lord's Supper. We're supposed to look forward. So he's making clear here. We're supposed to look forward. So we take the bread and the cup. When we do that, we're being reminded one day we will celebrate that meal with Jesus, not just with his spiritual presence, with his literal bodily presence. One day we'll take that meal again with Jesus. He'll be there with us. Look at what Jesus tells his disciples in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So if, if you're here and you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then, then one day you'll be given a spot in this future kingdom. That's what Jesus says here. Now, as we've oftentimes seen in Luke, the, the faith in Christ is necessary to get into the future kingdom. It's not just lip service. So it's not just saying the right things. It's, it's an actual trust in Christ. It's what he makes clear at the beginning of verse 28, when he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. 
Now, in a minute, we're going to see the example of somebody who claimed Christ, but was never really trusted Christ, who is Judas. And he does not have a place in the future kingdom. Now, the kind of faith in Christ that's required is, is a real trust, an abiding trust in him. It's the same sort of thing we saw last week in chapter 21, verse 19, when Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. But see, for the one who doesn't just claim Jesus with their words, but actually spends their life leaning on Christ, actually spends their life holding on to Jesus, that person will one day sit down at the table with Jesus Christ. It's what Revelation 19 describes as the marriage supper between Jesus and his church. This is Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Okay, so one day the entire universal church of Christians, everybody that's ever trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, we will all be gathered together around Christ and we will have the marriage supper of the lamb. And every month we're given a reminder of that future meal with the Lord. You see, the Lord's Supper calls us to look forward. If you're like me, there's probably times where you've got a long, hard day. And part of what you use to comfort yourself is thinking about a meal maybe that you get to have that night. So we have a bunch of little kids. And, uh, and so oftentimes what I'll do is I'll eat after they all go to sleep because then it's just peaceful and easygoing and the sky's the limit and you can do whatever you want because the kids are asleep. And so I'll look forward to that time where you get to eat and, and relax. Maybe you do that too. You're using that future meal at home to help propel you through the day. That's part of the intention of the Lord's Supper is that it's a monthly reminder. Oh, one day we're going to share this meal with Christ in a place where we can be fully relaxed because there's no sin any longer or sickness or sadness or death or pain. That's part of the intention of the Lord's Supper. So, so when you're worn out with your struggle with indwelling sin, when there's sin and you pray that the Lord would work in you and you search his word for passages that help, you try to get calibrated about that sin and you ask for encouragement and even rebuke from brothers and sisters in Christ, but you just feel like you're not moving as fast as you'd like to to get past that sin. When you're struggling with that, the Lord's Supper is designed to remind you that a day is coming when you'll be able to relax at the table with Jesus for all eternity. When, when your physical health is waning, the Lord's Supper is reminded to, or is designed to remind you that a day is coming when you'll be able to relax at the table with Jesus in his kingdom forever. When work is hard or friendships are strained or parenting is difficult, same thing. The Lord's Supper is designed to point you forward to that day. And we'll be able to relax at the table with Jesus in his kingdom forever. So, so that day is coming and the meal monthly is a reminder. It's a pledge to you. It's a pledge to us. The Lord's Supper instructs us to look forward. But the Lord's Supper also instructs us to look back. Look at the next thing Jesus talks about here. Verse 19. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So the Lord's Supper is not designed only to have us look forward. It's, it's also designed to have us look back 
As Jesus says here, we're supposed to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ. So what in particular are we remembering about Jesus when we take the Lord's Supper? Well, we're remembering the event that he says the elements, the bread and the cup represent. Verse 19, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so he makes it clear in the Lord's Supper, the bread symbolizes his body. The cup symbolizes his blood. He, he's talking about his work on the cross where he's about to give his body and his blood on his people's behalf. Now, now you might be here and maybe you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus. And you might wonder, okay, this is something I've thought about. Why did Jesus have to give his body and his blood? You know, why was this required? Well, it gets back to the idea of the Passover meal. That it started all the way back in the book of Exodus, like we mentioned earlier. And remember, it's called the Passover because in the middle of the night, God's presence passes through Egypt and he takes the firstborn child, the firstborn animal. He takes their life, but he passes over the Israelites' houses that have the blood of the lamb that are spread on the doorpost. They're the ones that are preserved. Everybody else dies. Now, now when we hear stories like that, it's oftentimes easy to wonder, how is that okay? You know, sometimes we bristle at that. God takes the lives of these firstborn as his spirit passes through. But we have to remember, and this is just a good, true thing that will, that will help understand all sorts of things that happen in this life, in the word. God can judge any sinner for any sin, anytime he wants. It's just a true thing. God can judge any sinner for any sin, anytime he wants. You need to remember that when it comes to events like the Passover. In fact, the question shouldn't be, why did God judge this sinner at this time? The question should be, why isn't God judging all sinners right now? That's the thing that doesn't make sense. And of course, it's because God is so inexplicably gracious. But see, in Exodus 12, he, he had decided that enough is enough with Egypt. And so he's going to bring this judgment on them so, so that they would release his people. So he sends his spirit, goes to the neighborhoods of Egypt, passes over the houses, and the firstborn dies. But, and, and this is the thing the Jews had continued to celebrate with this meal, Israel's firstborn children, even though those Israelites were sinners too, their children didn't have to die. And the reason that happened is because the Israelites had followed this instruction to put blood from the lamb on their doorposts. Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the reason God didn't kill the Israelites is because they had the blood that was smeared there on their houses. So how does that work? Well, here it is. It's the way scripture talks about it. Blood represents life. That's what blood is getting after in scripture. It represents life. And this makes sense. Somebody can lose an eye. They can lose their arm. They could lose a kidney. You can't lose your blood and remain living. If your blood is gone, then you lose your life. This is Leviticus chapter 17, verse 14. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So, so sin has to be punished. Scripture teaches that. The appropriate punishment for sin against a perfect God 
is the forfeiture of life, trading our life for that out of punishment. But, but because he's really gracious, God lets these lambs stand in the place of the Israelites. That's what's happening there in the Passover. These lambs give their lives so the Israelites don't have to give their lives. The lamb dies as their substitute. But, but everybody understands that's not really a fair trade. You know, you might love lambs, but a lamb standing in the place of a person, that's not really a fair trade. So when, when I was in graduate school in Louisville, I managed a Starbucks. We would make new hires, and it was always so funny. This happened the majority of the time. We would get to the part where we talked about the calendar, and I would explain, okay, so this is how it works. We put this calendar up. You can request a day off, write it on the calendar. If you're the first one, most likely you'll get that. If other people are asking for it off, that's where it gets dicey. But when it comes to holidays, we kind of all have to sit down and work that out. And we try to work around people's schedule. And, and almost inevitably, people would say the same thing. They would say, well, if you'll give me Christmas off or Thanksgiving, what if I work Flag Day or some other holiday that nobody really cares about? And I'd always have to say the same thing. I'd say that I see where you're coming from. But the truth is, everybody's willing to work Flag Day. Nobody wants to work Christmas. Those two, those two holidays don't really even out. They're different. They're not equivalent. It's the same kind of thing. So a lamb can't permanently take the place of a human. It's not one for one. That's not like for like, not when it comes to paying for sins. But what, what we learn in scripture is it was never God's plan for that to be a permanent fix. He always knew exactly what he was doing. All of those animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were only a placeholder. It was like a payment, like a credit card payment. If you're not going to pay it in full, but you make that minimum payment that keeps you from getting in trouble, but then you're going to have to pay the full balance eventually. That's what was happening. Of course, God isn't beholden to somebody else. He set that system up. So he's just putting it off. He's giving a placeholder, these animals dying in place of the Israelites, until the one final perfect sacrifice could take place. Back to our passage now, verse 19 and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So on the cross, Jesus was giving his body and his blood to finally, and permanently, and fully pay for all the sins of everybody, past, present, and future, who has ever, would ever trust in Christ alone to pay for their sins. That's what he's getting at with the language in verse 20 about the cup representing the new covenant in his blood. So, okay, that's the new covenant. What's the old covenant? Well, the old covenant is the covenant God made with Israel. Some people call it the law covenant or the Mosaic covenant. And it was always meant to be a temporary covenant until the Savior arrived on the scene to bring with him the new covenant to finally pay for the sins of God's people. Of course, the way our sins were paid for was through the death of Christ on the cross. So, so if you're a Christian, if you're placing faith in Christ alone to save you, then he has given his body and his blood to pay for your sins. You, you should have had to give your life. I should have had to give my life. But instead, Christ stepped in as our substitute. That's the good news of the gospel. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of this. It's exactly like Jesus tells us to do at the end of verse 19. Do this, take the supper, do this in remembrance of me. So the question for us by way of application, are you thoughtful about these truths as you take the Lord's Supper every month? 
you know, when we took the supper this past Sunday, did you leverage that meal as, as a time to really remember the gospel or do you find yourself just going through the motions, not really thinking about it? So, so think about this test. If, if you're feeling guilty over a particular sin that you've repented of, you've asked God's forgiveness, you've turned from that sin, but you still feel guilty. Does taking the Lord's Supper help relieve that guilt? It should. It should. As we partake in that visible symbol of the gospel, it should help to lighten our load, to remember that our sins really have been paid for. You probably remember, but in the Old Testament, God's people would pile up rocks in a place where God had done something good for them. It was called Ebenezer, those Ebenezer stones. And every time they passed it, it would be a reminder. Oh, yeah, that's right. God's faithful. Look at what he's done for me. That's what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do. It's supposed to be like an Ebenezer, those stacks of rocks where every month as a body, we get to walk past and partake of the Lord's Supper and be reminded in a unique way. Oh, he really has done this. Christ really has paid for all of my sins. So we want to leverage the Lord's Supper in that way. So not only do we look forward, we also look back to the cross of Christ. Okay, so the Lord's Supper instructs us to look forward, to be with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Instructs us to look back, to work on the cross to pay for our sins. But third, it also instructs us to love Jesus. This is the third thing we see. It instructs us to love Jesus. But, but everybody gathered around Jesus at this meal did not love him. Verse 21. He says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Of course, he's talking about Judas. Look back at verse three, what we're told there. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray them to him or betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Okay, now maybe the first thing you notice here is that Satan entered Judas. Pretty terrifying thought when we think about that. But, but if you're a Christian, let me put your mind at ease. If you're trusting in Christ, Satan can't enter you. Not the way he does with Jesus here. He, he can't possess you. And the reason for that is simple. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And when, when it comes to people, those two things are mutually exclusive. You can have the spirit inside of you, or you can have a demon inside of you. You can't have both. Second Corinthians 6 talks about that. Second Corinthians 3 verse 17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So praise God for that. However, we do know a, a demon can certainly tempt you as a Christian. A demon can certainly harass those of us who, who trust in Christ. But praise God, no demon can take you over. But see, Judas is not a Christian. He's not trusting in Christ. His words are, are fake. It's not real. So this is exactly what happened to him. Satan enters him. But, but we need to remember something here. Judas had given Satan ample opportunity to do this. So you might remember this, but you remember Judas was the one that was stealing out of, out of the money reserves of Jesus and the disciples. Of course, nobody knew that except for him. He, he had really made the first move. To, to entice Satan here. So, so Judas had accepted money to stab Jesus in the back by getting him arrested, knowing that this arrest would lead to Jesus's death. And, and the detail of the story that should really stand out to us in this regard is, is how horrible it is that after Judas had accepted the money, so Judas knows what he's going to do, but he still shares that fellowship 
at the meal with Jesus. I think that's what Luke is getting at. He wants us to feel the weight of that, how crazy and evil that is. Judas knows he has already betrayed Christ. He's going to continue to betray him. But then he sits with Jesus and takes this meal like nothing is wrong, like nothing has happened. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. You know, it's one thing for somebody to be your enemy and let you know it, but it's something else entirely for them to cover that up and then pretend like they're your friend and disguise themselves in that way. That, that's what Judas is doing here. And it's exactly what the Lord's Supper reminds us not to do. Listen to the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So there's only two ways to go in this life. You can go Christ's way or you can deviate. And if you go opposed to Christ, then that's Satan's way. So Paul is saying that the person who isn't following Jesus shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper. The, the person who doesn't love Jesus shouldn't be drinking the cup and partaking of the table. I think this is what Paul's talking about in his warning about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So the Lord's Supper, it's a symbol of being united to Christ. And so for the person who doesn't love Jesus, the supper is not for them. You're not supposed to take the supper if you don't love Christ. Paul says they're guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus. And that was Judas. He didn't love Christ. He didn't trust Jesus. He didn't desire to serve Jesus. And so we're supposed to feel frustration when we read verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. It shouldn't be that way. Well, look at what Jesus says about the consequences of Judas's action. Verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So we should notice something real quick about verse 22. We've talked about this before. We talked about it in the Philippians study a few weeks ago. Jesus makes two things really clear. First of all, Judas's betrayal of Jesus has been determined, is what it says here. In fact, before the creation of the world, it had been decided that Jesus would be betrayed by, G or by Judas and go to the cross. And that was decided by God. This is Acts 2, 23. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God had decided these events were going to go down this way. And, and this shouldn't be a surprise to us. God is in charge of everything. He's the Lord over the universe. He's in charge of everything. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So he's in charge of everything. But even though this is the case, look at what we see in verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Isn't this interesting? This is what we see all, all over the place in the New Testament in particular. Old Testament too, but it really comes to the fore in the New Testament. You've got two things. Jesus puts them side by side. One is God's sovereignty. He's in control of all things. The other is man's responsibility. Because see, what he says there is, the reason Judas is about to betray me is because that's what God decided would happen before the foundation of the world. God's sovereignty. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. 
Judas is still going to be held responsible for this thing that God decided would be this way. Now, we don't understand how that works, right? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. How do those things fit together? We don't know because God hasn't revealed that to us. But of course, both things are undoubtedly true. Jesus is saying that judgment is coming Judas's way, even though it had been decided that things would go down that way. It's a serious thing to, to outwardly pretend to share fellowship with Christ through the Lord's Supper and not really love Jesus. And, and that's what Judas is, is doing here. And that's why when we take the Lord's Supper, the pastor should give this warning that if you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Christ, then you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. But, but see, the good news for you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know what you think about Christ, the good news is that the Lord's Supper can be for you. And, and it's not that you have to work up to it. You don't have to develop a system of religious purity where after three months maybe of working hard, you could be ready to take the Lord's Supper. No, the way to, the way to become united to Christ is through trust alone, apart from works. It's through trust alone in Christ alone. That's what makes somebody, uh, somebody who can take the Lord's Supper. That's what qualifies somebody to do it. Trust alone in Christ alone. So, so if you hear that as a non-Christian, talk to me afterwards or talk to one of the other pastors or send me an email. If you want to talk about the gospel, if you're willing to listen to the good news about Christ, giving himself on your behalf, if, if you'll only trust in him alone. But, but the Lord's Supper is only for people who have decided to trust and follow Christ, to love him above all others. And this could be a helpful practice for you as a Christian. So the next time you're thinking about sinning, the next time you've got the choice in front of you and you understand, okay, this is sin. I'm tempted to head this direction. Am I going to do it? There's all sorts of remedies for that. The scripture gives, there's all sorts of different places you could go there. But one place you could try Remember the fact that you regularly share the Lord's Supper with Christ. And, and think about how underhanded and wrong it is to betray Christ by lusting or being greedy or being unrighteously angry and then to share the Lord's Supper with him. Those two things don't fit. They shouldn't fit. Now, now of course, this, this doesn't mean that our sin as Christians is a reason to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. We're still supposed to take it. Right? We're still supposed to recognize that our sins have been covered. But we are supposed to also recognize that those two things aren't supposed to go together. Our sin and taking the Lord's Supper. And, and so instead of, of using our sin as a reason to refrain from the table, which I don't think Scripture teaches anywhere. Instead of using our sin as a reason to refrain from the table, let's pray that the table would be a reason for us to refrain from our sin. Do you understand? Leverage it in that way. Throw that in the arsenal of things that you use to try to turn from sin. In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll take the Lord's Supper. Say that to yourself. And I don't want to have my hand on the table with Christ, who I'm betraying right now. I don't want to do that. So instead of using our sin as a reason to refrain from the table, pray the table would be a reason for us to refrain from our sin. Because we are those who, who take the Lord's Supper, we're not supposed to turn our backs on Christ. The, the Lord's Supper instructs us to love Jesus. But the Lord's Supper doesn't just teach us to love Jesus. Finally, it also instructs us to love the church. Look at the conversation that occurs in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
This is something we've seen the disciples do before where they argue about which one of them is the best or the most important. This is something that comes standard with our sinful nature as humans. Now, some of us are sophisticated enough and clever enough, good enough with people where we can cover it up. But we understand we all have that fleshly impulse to want to feel important, to want to feel better, to want to feel impressive to others. It's what we saw with the scribes back in chapter 20, verse 46. Jesus tells us to be beware. Uh, He says, beware of doing this yourself. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. But see, the disciples, they had forgotten this lesson. So now they're arguing about which one of them is the best. And of course we can relate, right? Don't you feel that tug to want to be important, to want to, to want to be unique among other people and then have other people realize that you're important and then realize that you're unique Look at what Jesus said, verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So he's telling the disciples, you guys are operating like non-Christians in this way. This this is what the non-Christian world does, trying to get ahead of people, trying to be more important than other people, to gain more recognition. Verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So Jesus is saying, don't don't try to be the most important. Look at what he says to do practically, verse 27. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus says as his disciples, we're, we're not supposed to try to be great. We're not supposed to be the ones that are reclining at the table while other people are are serving us. We're supposed to do the opposite. We're supposed to be the ones who are serving. And and as Christians, we should employ this in all of life. So as, as Christians, we should regularly be taking the role of a servant. That's just part of the Christian life. That's who we're supposed to be. So, so think about your life in particular at work. Are you characterized as the one who reclines while others serve you? Is that what it usually looks like for you at work? Jesus says, be the opposite of that. Or you can think about at home. At home, are you usually the one who reclines while your spouse serves you? It shouldn't be that way. Not, Not if you're a Christian. Do the opposite of that. Or you can think about the church. Are you usually the one who reclines? while others around you are the ones who are serving. Follow our savior here, end of verse 27. But I am among you as the one who serves. I don't think it's coincidental that this scene follows the institution of the Lord's Supper. No, I I think Jesus is tying this discussion back to what they had just seen him do. What did they just see him do? They saw him serving them. Not only that, but he's serving them a symbol that's symbolic of the ultimate service that he's about to give to them on the cross. But in the Lord's Supper, you remember, it's the disciples who are sitting down at the table and it's Jesus who is distributing the food to them. Jesus is coming to them. He's serving them. And and during our monthly observance of the Lord's Supper, we get to see this as we are all served the supper. So just think about how we did it last Sunday. You didn't walk up front, did you? You remained seated. Somebody brought you the supper. We might not think about it. That's a picture of the gospel. 
that's that's us spiritually right you weren't think back to your conversion you weren't looking for christ you didn't have a love for jesus no as a non-christian you were his enemy you weren't interested in him but what happened you didn't come to him he came to you you were seated christ came to you that's the gospel that's what happens in the lord's supper we see that picture of it we stay seated the supper is brought to us into verse 27, but I am among you as the one who serves. And the way we're served the Lord's Supper reminds us to turn around and serve our brothers and sisters in this same way. The Lord's Supper reminds us to love the church. It's really easy to see the Lord's Supper as an individual activity that's just between us and the Lord. It's not an individual activity. It's, that's not what God intends. The, the Lord's Supper, it's a church activity. Listen to the way Paul says it, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. He says, the bread that we break, talking about the Lord's Supper, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You can tell us what the body of Christ means. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So see, the Lord's Supper, it symbolizes our connection to Christ. Most Christians understand that. That's, that's a pretty easy one. But what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10 is it also symbolizes our connection to one another. Inside of the local gathering, our fellow church members, we're connected to one another as a body. And he says that the bread is a symbol of that. The bread's broken and the individual pieces of the bread are all part of the one bread. Individual members of the body are all part of the one body of Christ. And that, that cuts completely against the idea of us thinking we're better or more important than our fellow brothers or sisters in Christ. You might remember, but in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's confronting this exact problem with the Corinthian church when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Some members are showing up and they're eating more than others. They're considering themselves to be more important during the Lord's Supper, probably because of their wealth. They have this fancier food. They have more access to it. Listen to what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together, wait for one another. That's because the Lord's Supper isn't an individual meal between us and God. It's a communal meal. It's a family meal. The same way the Passover meal was. The Passover meal wasn't where all Israel would come together. They had certain festivals that that's what happened. No, this one happens in individual homes. It's individual families. And see, in the same way, the Lord's Supper is celebrated by brothers and sisters in Christ as a family meal. Like we say in our church's confession of faith, in the Lord's Supper, we commemorate together the sacrificial love of Christ. It's, it's not just Peter there with Jesus. It's not just James. It's not just, they're just John. No, those closest disciples are all there together, and they're sharing that meal together. So when you take the Lord's Supper, don't just let it remind you to love Jesus. Also let it remind you to love the church in fact, it would probably be helpful to read our church covenant, if you're a member here, the days leading up to the Lord's Supper, to, to be reminded of the ways the Bible tells us to love one another, giving spiritual care and encouragement to one another, giving material care to one another, praying for one another, rejoicing with one another, bearing one another's burdens. The Lord's Supper is a, a family meal, and those taking it together are reminded that we're a family. But see, we're only a family because Jesus purchased us all through his sacrifice on the cross. And, and because of that sacrifice, we not only get to look back, but praise God, we also get to look forward. 
the day when he's returning to take us to his bodily, be with him, bodily present for all eternity. The Lord's Supper is, is such a gift. It calls us to look back and forward to love Jesus and love the church. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful that you have given us this symbol of the gospel, this, this way for us to see the truth of the gospel actually move in front of us. Father, we're thankful that, that we get to, uh, to see the Lord's Supper distributed, to hear what your word says about it, Father, to touch it and to taste it. We understand that we are weak creatures. And so, Father, you give us these visual representations of the gospel to help bolster our faith. And Father, we pray that your spirit would use it to do just that. We pray that your spirit would call us to look forward to the hope that we have when Jesus returns. We pray that it would call us to look back in the supper, to remember that all of our sins have been paid for on the cross. We pray, Father, your spirit would leverage it for love of Jesus. We pray even this week, Father, that we would turn from sin more greatly because of understanding that we share table fellowship with Christ and that we wouldn't want him to be betrayed even in small moments in our week. And Father, we pray that your spirit would leverage it inside of us to love the church, to remember that it's a family meal and we are connected to one another. We have responsibility for one another, Father, because you have brought us all together into a local body. So thankful for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that we see it through the Lord's Supper. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.